0: This is Guns and Butter. There's
1: and I've seen German politicians and former judges rail at this and say, what have you done to our country? You have sworn an oath of office to protect and defend Germany and to promote the, the general welfare, and you're not doing it by letting in a wave of people who speak no known language, who have no ties to the area of culture, of religion, of history, or anything else, and uh,
0: suddenly you lose track of them all. And how does this happen? It, it's just astonishing. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, J. Michael Springman. Today's show, Migration as Asymmetric Warfare. Michael Springman is a former diplomat in the State Department's Foreign Service, with postings to Germany, India, Saudi Arabia, and the Bureau of Intelligence and Research in Washington, D.C. He was chief of the non-immigrant visa section in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia from 1987 to 1989. His latest book is Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos, Merkel's Migrant Bomb, in which he provides an in-depth analysis of the migrant flood, its causes, and what it means for Europe. Building on arguments put forward in his classic work, Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts that Rocked the World, An Insider's View. He reveals how U.S. foreign policy created the crisis. As an ex-State Department official and attorney, his insider knowledge of U.S. policy reveals a world where immigrants become weapons, nationalism is condemned, and civil liberties hang in the balance. Michael Springman, welcome. It's great to have you back on again. Well, it's good to be here, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your listeners. In your new book about the migrant crisis facing Europe, Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos, Merkel's Migrant Bomb, you pay special attention to Germany and German Chancellor Angela Merkel. I knew that uh, Angela Merkel is the daughter of a Lutheran minister and that she's from East Germany, the former German Democratic Republic. You have some more information on her, but not a whole lot. What do we know about Merkel and her background?
1: Well, she's very good at concealing her background. Uh, She was born in Hamburg and taken as an infant to the East, uh, where she and her family got special treatment because her father created a branch of the Lutheran Church that was subservient, in in a sense, to the East German government and uh, worked, in fact, to help prop up that government. And uh, Merkel grew up there, spent 35 years in the East, joined the free German youth. Uh, because her father was subservient to the government, she get to study at prestigious schools, went on to get a PhD in, in physics. And um, this was at a time when the clergy's children were routinely refused advantages. They had cars, they had trips abroad, uh, that kind of thing. And in my research for the book, I found that uh, uh, Jonathan Powell, who had been uh, chief of staff to former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, he had described Merkel as a ruthless, vicious um, uh, politician. And, and of course, uh, Mama Merkel uh, portrays herself as mother of the nation, and uh, she has her arms open to all the children of the world who want to come to Germany. And uh, from what I can see, uh, that's not the case. Um, I'll give you a further example. Um, she was very close to Louis de Meziere, the last non-communist head of the, uh, the, uh, the East Germany, the, the German Democratic Republic, and she knew all his background. Uh, she became a protege of Helmut Kohl, the West German chancellor uh, at the time, and the head of the Christian Democratic Union, the, the large center-right party. And it seems somehow, in some way, uh, Cole's background uh, in uh, slush funds, illegal financial transactions, black money, you name it, somehow became public. And Cole uh, was removed as head of the party. The guy next in line to be head of the party had been Lothar de Meziere, but somehow, some way, the information got out to the press that this guy had a background in the Stasi, the state security service that spied on everybody and everyone in East Germany. And the only person close to either of them who knew all their dark secrets was Angela Merkel. So I I, I think that uh, she has a public persona and a private persona. And uh, there's a
0: lot of stuff in the private persona that I think we need to know and don't. So what is your assessment of Angela Merkel? Is there evidence or have you found any evidence that she was involved with the East German Stasi? Well, they claimed, uh, that, uh, she had resisted the
1: one attempt to recruit her. Uh, but then she'd also been involved in agitation and propaganda when she was part of the East German youth. And, uh, the funny thing is uh, other people uh, whom she had known uh, in the East and were part of the Stasi, she's brought into her government. There was a Annetta Kahana, whose codename was Victoria with the Stasi. Uh, she now has indirect control of Germany's war on hate speech. And uh, Merkel's justice minister uh, had recruited her and the organization that she had founded, something called Network Against Nazis. Uh, to define and control controversial language, hmm. and uh, the the Adara Press apparently came out at one point and accused her of being a Stasi informant, uh, with her being an unofficial associate with the security service. And uh, you know, Merkel has always maintained that she's only been involved in cultural affairs with the Free German Youth, and uh, was not involved with the uh, the bad boys at all. Um, so uh, you know, people say things, but uh, whether or not they can prove it, I don't know. Uh, there's one guy who uh, apparently had been uh, involved in writing a news article with the um, you know, Spiegel. Uh, he had claimed that she had also been a secretary for agitation and propaganda when she was in the Free German Youth. So uh, you know, it's there's all speculation. There's people talking, uh, but. Uh, she never admits her closeness to the old East German system and at one point had, to, is supposed to have said, reform East Germany, it won't be in terms of the West German Federal Republic. So I, I guess the, the imprint, I guess, of the, the old East German ways are still in her mindset and she's going to command and control from the top instead of doing a conciliatory democracy like her predecessors had done.
0: According to your book... Germany's Federal Office for Migration and Refugees tweeted on August twenty fifth, twenty fifteen, we are no longer enforcing the Dublin procedures for Syrian citizens. What are the Dublin procedures? And have they been reinstituted? Well, the, the Dublin procedure was the um uh the idea that uh
1: you get to the Uh, European Union, and whichever country in the European Union you get to first, uh, you apply for asylum or refugee status there, not wandering from country to country and trying to find the best deal, kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And as far as I know, uh, they've been trying to reinstitute the Dublin Procedures But uh, they've not been successful at it.
0: Now, I also read in your book that in 2015, Austria and Germany abolished the law temporarily and migrants didn't need to register. Is that true? Yes. I
1: I was told by the Austrian embassy, I'd sent them an email and said, well, you know, can you give me some figures on uh, the wave of migrants through Austria? And, And I was told, no, we can't because there was such a flood that we couldn't keep track of them. They just poured across the border and kept going.
0: The surge of immigrants into Germany began in early spring of 2015. Mm -hmm. Is there evidence of a clandestine human smuggling operation planned, funded, and coordinated by foreign intelligence agencies? Well, I've not found anything
1: that says, yes, indeed, these guys did this there and then, but from my readings and from my research and from what other people have, have uh, written, uh, I think that this was planned and this was carried out. At one point, uh, for example, I have read that the, um, the American government was funding uh, both for migrants and the French government was uh, helping distribute them to uh, refugees in Turkey so they could go across the Ionian Sea to, uh, to Greece. Uh, I've seen things that talked about how Uh, there were organizations in Syria and other countries that were creating uh, nearly perfect counterfeit Iraqi and Syrian passports. And I'm not sure how you can do this in a country where it's all you can do to get enough to eat and you don't even have time to pray. I've also read that uh, the security services who were supposedly watching these people somehow lost track of them. And I'm not quite sure how, if it's your job to follow someone, you can suddenly lose him all of a sudden. Uh, that's That's been the big issue. Um, there have been organizations, for example, like Cisco Systems, that somehow, out of the goodness of their heart, contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, uh, non-governmental organizations like uh, Mercy Corps and NetHope to handle refugees and to uh, set up uh, Wi-Fi uh arrangements in the Balkans on the migrant routes to bring people north and west. Uh, people have uh, their uh, expensive cell phones that somehow connect to the internet and guide them to where they want to go. They can get them their, um, the, the price of a smuggler in Greece or what it costs to go from uh, Turkey to, uh, to Germany. So it's, it's very, very peculiar. And we've got people like George Soros, who's always the big bad boogeyman. Uh, he is supposedly coming up with uh, apps for uh, iPhones to help guide these people. His Central European University in Budapest, which is being targeted by the Hungarian government for uh, its strange extracurricular activities, they've recruited interpreters to help people move uh, and get themselves asylum in in Europe. So uh, there's enough there that it's, uh, you know, you're 50 to 75 percent certain that the intelligence services are doing it, but you can't figure out exactly who is doing it
0: and name names
1: uh,
0: and times of day and things like this. Yes, I'd like to go into some of that in a little bit more detail. But first, how would you characterize the majority of the migrants into Europe? Are they families? And if not, who are they? They're mostly young, single men.
1: Uh, In in Sweden, I think it was something like 70% of the uh, applicants for asylum or refugee status were young, single men, you know, below 35. Uh, There are some families, uh, there are some wives, uh, and there are some children. In in many cases, there are tens of thousands of unaccompanied children who are also mostly male. And they all seem to disappear. I think they've lost track of uh, something like 10,000 unaccompanied minors at one point.
0: Now, I've heard estimates, and I think you mentioned it in your book, that as many as 300,000 immigrants have simply disappeared upon entering Germany, that the German government has no record of these people, and they don't know who they are. Exactly right. I, I, I was astounded when I saw this, and I said, well, look, you've got uh,
1: Germany where uh, if you're uh, coming to the country as a foreigner and you register in a, a hotel room, They take all your particulars and give them to the local police force. Uh, If you're uh, an illegal alien, like many of these people are, uh, you should be doubly checked as to who you are and uh, what you're doing there. I mean, the Germans have the, uh, the federal criminal police who have jurisdiction across the country and who cooperate with the local police in each of the German states, the lender. And then you've got the internal security service, the federal office for the protection of the constitution, it's their job and the job of all these police forces to keep track of people and to ensure that you have domestic tranquility and you don't have a, a gang of terrorists running loose in the country. And You need to know who is there and what they're doing. And I've seen German politicians and former judges rail at this and say, what have you done to our country? You have sworn an oath of office to protect and defend Germany and to promote the, the general welfare. And you're not doing it by letting in a wave of people who speak no known language who have no ties to the area of culture, of religion, of history or anything else. And uh, suddenly you lose track of them all. And how does this happen?
0: It's just astonishing. I'm speaking with former U.S. diplomat, attorney, and author, Michael Springman. Today's show, Migration as Asymmetric Warfare. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. A well-known author living in Germany told me, off the record, that it's dangerous now for women to go out at night and that the German government prosecutes people who speak out against immigrant crime. What do we know about this? Well, that's unfortunately all too true. I mean, all the feminists in Germany, I'm surprised
1: they're not screaming blue-bloody murder at uh, uh, the demands that uh, if they go out alone, they shouldn't do it. They should go out with a a male escort. They shouldn't go out by themselves at night alone, uh, that it's dangerous. They've had attacks all over the country, uh, and they're still picking up. I've read how they've had knifings in in Hamburg and a shootout in a nightclub in in Konstanz in the the south of Germany. And it's uh, astonishing. There are demands for... uh, Uh, segregated uh, gymnasium hours, segregated swimming pool hours and uh, people are balking at this for saying this is our country, we shouldn't have to adapt to the foreigners and yet it's the other way around. And Merkel and her government uh, are imposing sanctions on people for hate speech uh, and it's very broadly defined. If you go on Facebook and say that uh, uh, these people should be shot, they should be driven out of town, they should be tarred and feathered or something similar. Uh, it's not you know, imminent death to these people, it's, it's uh, spouting off at, at uh, uh, politicians who don't do anything about this. Well, they get fined, they get suspended prison sentences, and uh, one guy was thrown in jail with a big fine because he had said that uh, Merkel and her ministers should be stood up against the wall and shot because they've uh, abandoned Germany to a gang of aliens.
0: Is Germany's constitution under attack? What executive changes have been instituted by Chancellor Merkel? Now, you, we've just been talking about free speech. I guess that's mm-hmm. something, huh?
1: Yes, indeed. The, the German constitution very specifically and flatly says that freedom of speech is inviolate. And it talks about uh, speech itself. It talks about uh, letters, it talks about telephone calls, it talks about emails and electronic communications. And yet, um, uh, when uh, somebody speaks out like this, uh, they're in a world of trouble because the government comes down on them and uh, the German government claims, oh, well, this is hate speech and we have a section in the law against hate speech. Well, there's hate speech and there's uh, asking questions, there's demanding answers from politicians. And uh, Merkel seems to have gone overboard on this, and she seems to have not only changed by executive order, what free speech really means, uh, she's also increased surveillance of Germans. Uh, They've increased uh, uh, controls on legitimate travelers at the border, they've uh, gotten into uh, the intelligence services, reading people's emails and telephone conversations, Uh, they are... uh, going on about how we, we have to have security in Germany, and it's a security at the price of liberty, very much like the United States. Oh, we want to be protected from terrorists. We want to protect you from terrorists. And at the same time, they're cutting back on uh, actual freedom. So it's it's not the right wing that's uh, howling for uh, men on horseback and, and, and the revival of Adolf Hitler. It's it's the center-left, uh, the center-right center governments of Europe, in particular Germany and France and Britain, who are... Uh, engaged in investigating and controlling and secretly uh, spying on people.
0: And with regard to uh, crime, is there evidence that the German Internal Intelligence Service won't or can't do its job? Uh, it appears so.
1: I mean, there are two really well-known examples. Uh, one was this fellow, Anas Amri, uh, who uh, was a um, a migrant And he had stolen a truck in Berlin and driven it into the Breitscheidplatz Christmas market in the center of town, uh, killing and wounding a number of people. And he was known to have uh, had a uh, history of uh, being jailed in Italy. And he had been on a watch list by the German Internal Security Service, the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution. He had been on the American no-fly list. Uh, He had... um, uh, at one point said he had told the, an informant for the, uh, the federal criminal police that he wanted to do something in Germany he wanted AK-47 to do it with. Yet they didn't seem this was enough to uh, arrest him or to follow him more closely and in fact dropped their surveillance of him about six months before the, uh, the attack at the Christmas market. There was another instance in southwest Germany in the university town of Freiburg where this uh, Hussein Kavari, an Afghan migrant, had raped and murdered by drowning Maria Ladenburger, a young 19-year-old beautiful uh, medical student, when she was bicycling home from a party. She, in fact, had worked at uh, migrant homes uh, trying to help out the, the people who were uh, flooding Germany at the time, although apparently she didn't know her attacker. But in the, in the case of uh, this guy Kavari and Ladenburger, they kept a lid on it for months, and only because the, uh, the social media got a hold of it, and then the press uh, did anything come of it, and people started asking questions, what's going on, what's happening? Uh, didn't you know this guy had been jailed in Greece for trying to throw a woman over a cliff, and he had been let out of jail early, and he skipped parole, and suddenly he turned up in Germany, and they couldn't deport him because he had no papers. Uh, That was the same story with the guy in in Berlin at the Breitscheidplatz. He didn't have any papers, so they couldn't get rid of him. They denied his asylum claim. Uh, Yet at the same time, they had found several different documents in the truck and elsewhere, listing several different identities and several different passports. So you you really wonder, are they really this incompetent, or is there somewhere how a a dark fifth column in the the security services?
0: And what about the mainstream media in, well, in the United States and in Europe, are they doing a very good job of covering the situation with the waves of immigration into Europe? Not in my view. I mean,
1: it pops up occasionally in the United States that they had had a number of articles in the Washington Post at the time of the um, New Year's Eve uh, attacks in um, December 2015, uh, but by and large, if you have something, it's a small box item saying that in Konstanz there was a shootout in a nightclub, or there was a knifing in uh, uh, in Hamburg. But it's basically the bare bones. There's no explanation. There's no background. Uh, I, in fact, have gotten a questionnaire from a German publishing company saying that in Germany the people don't believe the press is free anymore. And from what I've seen in the research for the book, that's pretty true. Uh, They uh, kept a tight lid on what really happened on the uh, the New Year's Eve, rapes, robberies, and beatings. And again, that only came out when people started talking to social media and to the press.
0: In terms of the migrations from the Middle East, etc., into Europe generally, From reading your book, it looked like there was a huge movement in 2015, 2016. How many people, do they know how many people in the last few years have actually emigrated into Europe from the south? And where does that situation stand today?
1: Well, they don't rightly know. I mean, they they have estimates that go up and down. I mean, in Germany, they say at least a million people. Uh, if not more, uh, have turned up there and registered. Uh, Other countries, such as in the Balkans, just simply passed them through, like Slovenia. They created a corridor where the migrants could move through. Uh, The aim is not so much to end up in Greece or Slovenia or Serbia, which are essentially poor countries, where in Serbia a policewoman makes $300 a month, which is barely enough to buy a new computer. Uh, They're going north and west to the benefit-rich countries of Europe, And they come in such numbers that if they don't register, uh, nobody can keep track of them.
0: Could you tell us about the tweets that supposedly came from Merkel and Germany, but which mostly came from the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, saying that Germany and Austria were the most refugee-welcoming countries in Europe? When were these tweets sent out, and, and what about the existence of net bots in these tweets? What are netbots? Well, netbots, as I understand that, I'm not a, an expert on
1: electronics, but I looked them up on Norton, the uh, antivirus people, and they say that well, they, you seize control of a computer and turn it into a, um, uh, a repeater. You send something to this computer, and then the computer sends it out to another computer, and then that goes to a, still another computer, and these are all linked and they send out whatever messages you want. Uh, and the computer and the computer operator don't know this. They're just, they've just been taken over secretly. And uh, the tweets came out uh, after the, uh, the migrants started moving. And um, who did this and how they did this, I don't know. I think this is another one of these examples of the intelligence services involvement because uh, your average guy doesn't know how to do this. And I can't see why a, a hacker would suddenly become interested in sending out uh, uh, welcoming notices saying, hey, go to Germany or go to Austria. It's benefit rich. Uh, leave Syria, leave Libya, leave uh, sub-Saharan Africa and go there. Uh, they just simply came and they happened. And uh, nobody knows where they came from. And they, besides the U.S. And, and, and other places, large developed countries, they were coming out of Nepal and, and other small countries. And you really wonder about this. It's You, you can't pin it down. And it, it raises more questions than it answers, really, I think.
0: Well, now, obviously, a lot, if not most of these people that are migrating to Europe are coming because of the wars, the US instituted wars in many countries, what Iraq, Syria, Libya, etc. etc. In the preface to your new book, Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos, Sylvia Gurmek says that refugees are normally organized in camps near their own countries with the intention of returning. This does not seem to have been the case for many years.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And Sylvia had a lot of experience in this, working with non-governmental organizations involved with migrants and migration. Uh, And uh, she uh, had some ties to the intelligence service as well, as I understand it. Uh, So uh, she's entirely correct on this. I mean, you don't need to move an entire population from the Middle East to Northern Europe. Uh, The idea is to stop the war, stop the fighting, create a camp to... uh, Tend to these people's needs, uh, give them food and water and education, and then send them back home once you've repaired the broken water mains, the destroyed uh, sewage treatment plants and so forth. But this is not happening. The, the, the Americans have gotten the Europeans into this and have joined their forever war and are continuing to bomb and destroy whole countries and drive their populations out, who are then guided into, into Europe.
0: And what about the role of non-governmental organizations or NGOs? NGOs are found around the world in many countries. Are all NGOs American in origin or do other countries sponsor them? Well, other countries do.
1: I mean, you've got George Soros' Global Society Network of of all his organizations in Europe and in Britain and in Germany and so on. Uh, Then you've got uh, a number of these non-governmental organizations uh, that... uh, uh, Seem to have shadowy backgrounds. I mean, there was Welcome to Europe W2EU uh, that seems to uh, uh, have no real basis in, in 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 origin, no fixed base, but somehow they're bringing in migrants by the uh, the thousands. You have uh, groups of ships. There's a German uh, organization that uh, uh, I think it's called Sea Watch that uh, gets ships into the Mediterranean to intercept the. Um, uh, the small boats the migrants are in and, and and take them to safety in Europe and turn them loose. So it's uh, it's everything from uh, well-known organizations like George Soros' Open Society People, uh, and you've also got this uh, Sea Watch, and you've got uh, Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, and uh, you've got um, organizations I've never heard of before uh, that I mentioned in the book that somehow... Uh, bring these people across as well. And they they advocate for them. They agitate for them. Uh, They work very hard to uh, bring these people uh, across and uh, make sure they get to the right place at the right time and they get themselves into the country so that they can't be thrown out again.
0: I'm speaking with former U.S. diplomat, attorney, and author Michael Springman. Today's show, Migration as Asymmetric Warfare. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about humanitarian NGOs in war zones? Do many of them serve as CIA front organizations? She seemed to indicate this.
1: Yeah, in particular, uh, Mercy Corps does this. They're all involved in American war zones in Iraq, in Yugoslavia. And they come and they go and they come and they go. When things cool down, they move out. When they heat up, they move back in. And some of the Mercy Corps people have been arrested for uh, espionage. Hmm. So I I think that uh, these people's hands are not clean. And I've seen articles on uh, RT where they've had a number of uh, Germans saying that uh, we are going to organize a group called Defend Europe uh, to counter these these people that are bringing in the migrants and the, the ones that somehow have ties to the intelligence services.
0: The United Nations created a commitment to responsibility to protect R2P in 2005 which allowed for western peacekeeping missions or invasions based on humanitarian concerns how does R2P work well as it's, it's in the past has been used as a means
1: of american and nato aggression against given countries such as yugoslavia that's where the concept was first created Uh, Then they used it to uh, justify their invasion and destruction of Libya. And uh, they keep bringing it up in in terms of Syria where we have to do something and have a safe zone, have a no-fly zone, have a safety corridor, etc. And it's basically a way of moving armed forces into a given country uh, without that country's permission and without a declaration of war by uh, uh, the sending states.
0: Do the migrant streams constitute a strategy of tension? You've mentioned the strategy of tension in your book.
1: Yes, they do. It comes out of Kelly Greenhill's book, Uh, Weapons of Mass Migration, which came out about seven years ago, which pretty much shows uh, a blueprint on how to do this and and what works and what doesn't work and why. Uh, The idea is that you weaken a country by moving people out of it. And then you weaken another country by moving these same people into it. Uh, the losing country uh, loses its doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs. It doesn't have capitalists to uh, finance uh, businesses. It doesn't have professionals to manage these businesses. It doesn't have teachers to educate the children. And in the case of the uh, the alleged receiving state, although they, I don't know if you can call it receiving, they, they've been uh, pummeled and pounded by this flood. Uh, they have to cope with this, they have to come up with the money to feed them, to house them, uh, to educate them, to uh, teach them a known language. There is no pool of native Dari speakers or Arabic speakers in Europe. And in the case of uh, the uh, the migrants uh, going into Europe, uh, you know, how many of them speak German? How many of them speak Italian? Um, but what happens in the the receiving state? Is you have more tension because you have the groups of people who welcome them, saying, "Oh, we have to help them. They they're leaving a, a war zone. Uh, they they have nothing, but they can carry in their own two hands. We need to educate them and, and give them a place to live and integrate them into our society." And then you have the natives who say, "Well, wait a minute. It's our country. We get to decide who comes in, who stays, who goes, etc." And you you have the fights then that are that are created between the The migrants and the natives, and then the fights between the two groups of natives. so you you wind up with with tension and hostility and hatred on all sides.
0: Well, you mentioned uh, the book by Kelly Greenhill, Weapons of Mass Migration. And you just got through saying that she wrote this book about seven years ago. Was yes. this book Weapons of Mass Migration? Was this simply analysis of what was already happening? Or was it somehow uh, a theory or a formulation to show how this could be done? What what do you think of her book? Well, the book itself
1: was an analysis of some 64 uh, different events, everything from the the Haitian boat people to um, uh, migrants being pushed out of North Korea in the hopes of weakening the the North Korean government, uh, plus a few others. Uh, But I think, uh, looking at the book, uh, and reading through it and analyzing it, I, I think it's a, uh, a handbook on how to use these weapons of mass migration, how to uh, exploit uh, democratic societies. Because she says in the book, it, in, in a couple of different places, that the Achilles heel of uh, liberal democratic democracies uh, is that they have somewhere along the, the way signed conventions and agreements about migrants and asylees and helping them and bring them into the country if they are fleeing for their lives. And because of this, the, the migrants coming in say, well, wait a minute, you signed the Hague Convention on this or the international agreement on that. And aren't you contradicting yourselves? Aren't you being hypocritical? Isn't this hypocrisy? And she, in fact, terms this hypocrisy costs. That the people who uh, suddenly uh, can take a, a few people in uh, suddenly think, oh my God, it's it's uh, it's not a few people; it's a thousand, it's ten thousand, it's a hundred thousand. Uh, and in fact, in her book, at one point, she says that uh, uh, one migrant is um, a tragedy, ten migrants is a novelty, and a hundred migrants are trouble. So it's. Uh, If you look at her book, and especially look at the section on Korea, where you get non-governmental organizations involved, uh, especially those with a religious caste, uh, you can uh, get people out of the country and try to move them into South Korea and into China. And it failed there because the Chinese said, no, 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 these are economic migrants. Uh, They're not fleeing anything except uh, their own uh, uh, economic situation in North Korea. And the South Koreans, who welcomed them at first, saw that these people were not philosopher kings, but in a sense, troublemakers. And they said, we can't take care of 1,000 or 2,000 people. How are we going to take care of more? So let's block this. And that's what happened. But it seems to be working very, very well in Europe.
0: That's right. China didn't cooperate with that, and they blocked that, according to her book is this emptying out of one country and then flooding another country with people this effectively is a destabilization device right i mean how exactly. ha- how has this affected europe well it's it's uh, just turned it upside down you've got
1: for example i, I remember seeing a um, a press conference given by a city councilman in munich who uh, said to the uh, the city council there look, we've got uh, 50,000 migrants in in Munich alone, they're housed in a sports stadium and they're going to have to sleep on the ground because we don't have 50,000 air mattresses to put under them. Uh, They were housed in sport halls in a small village of maybe 10,000 people east of Stuttgart. Uh, They were put up uh, in in, in camps in France and they've taken over Calais and are expanding in other places and the French government is having fits because uh, people are trying to hitch rides on trucks crossing through the, the Channel Tunnel to get into Britain where they think the benefits are better. So it's a, uh, uh, a terrible situation there. There are places where the, the students in a, uh, in a public school, uh, Muslim students, won't sit at a table with Christian girls. And they, they have this cross-cultural problem that they can't seem to break. And yet they seem to believe, the German government does, that everything is hunky-dory That, well, yeah, there are some uh, issues and some irritations, but uh, things are getting better. And it's not the case. It's uh, all over Europe. Uh, People are raising uh, serious questions and are questioning the governments, which ignore them. Uh, There's one case, and I think it's Denmark, where a, a guy brought his two wives and a dozen children in. And he claimed he was too sick to work and he was too sick to study Danish. And has recently gotten permission to bring another wife and eight more children over, and the uh, uh, the government is having fits, saying, "Well, what is this? Uh, this guy has is costing the taxpayer a fantastic amount of money every day for all of these people, and he can't work." So it's a uh, you you have violence, you have uh, inability to adjust. Uh, you know, initially it was things like. Uh, uh, Muslims that had clashed with drunken Oktoberfest goers in Munich, or uh, uh, the more ultra conservative of them uh, seemed to think that uh, the uh, some of the German girls, to their taste, were uh, too skimpily clad and they wanted them to cover up. And uh, this again brought more tension, and it, it snowballed from there into major issues.
0: You point out in your book that no European leader will state publicly that the migrations are caused by the U.S. wars. Exactly. They, they all
1: talk about, oh, we have to accommodate these poor people who are fleeing the tyranny of Syria. I, in fact, had a, um, a guy who had bought the German edition of my book talking to his sister, and he had sent me an email saying that his sister uh, thought this was all conspiracy theory, that uh, Bashar al-Assad was a monster, he was a devil incarnate, uh, that the United States really has to be supported in its fight against terrorism all around the world, and uh, anybody who questioned this was was somebody who really didn't understand what was going on. And I, I think there's an awful lot of that, and uh, the people, uh, for the most part, uh, see through a lot of this, uh, a good bit of it at least, uh, and see that. Uh, The Americans and their wars are creating this problem, but no politician says this. Nobody comes out and says this is a major issue. This is tied to uh, uh, religion, ethnicity. This is tied to uh, culture. And uh, it all comes about because the United States and the European countries, now that they're part of the forever war, have uh, destroyed Afghanistan, have destroyed uh, Iraq, have destroyed Libya, and have destroyed Syria. And, uh, if you stop the wars and use the money that is being used to prosecute the wars from NATO uh, and the, the NATO budgets of the, the NATO members and use this for something productive, like send these people back home, have a Marshall plan to, to repair the destroyed infrastructure, then you would have something that uh, would be useful. And the, these people could learn a trade. They could learn a language besides Farsi or, or uh, something like this. And, uh, be made better off, but instead uh, we're destroying their homelands. The real losers in all of this actually are the, the migrants because they essentially have been de-housed, de-culturalized, destabilized and destroyed. Uh, they're being forced to fit into German society and French society and, and Danish society. And what about their own society? They had a perfectly good society back home and
0: they've been driven out of it. So uh, everyone loses, not only the Europeans, but the migrants. I'm speaking with former U.S. diplomat, attorney, and author Michael Springman. Today's show, Migration as Asymmetric Warfare. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In terms of the uh, mass migrations into Europe, you talk quite a bit in your book, of course, about the outside help that has facilitated moving these, what are, I guess at this point, millions of people into the European Union. You talk about subsidies for smartphones, travel, the information highway, uh, groups encouraging people to migrate. I guess it must have been a year or more ago that I saw all of these pictures on Twitter of these huge columns of people streaming across the countryside. And I think maybe one of them, uh, this column of people was trying to enter Hungary. These were massive amounts of people, so it had to be organized, right? Exactly. I mean, they just don't suddenly wake up one morning and say, "Well, gee, I'm going
1: from uh, Damascus to Dusseldorf, uh, and it's a long way to go if you're walking on foot. It's a good 2,500 miles, if not more." So, yeah, I mean, it, it was organized. It was organized, I believe, by the intelligence services, uh, by these NGOs fronting for the intelligence services. Uh, and by uh, people in the various countries. I think there was a column that marched from Hungary into Austria, uh, and they were led by uh, Syrians and Iraqis. So it's it's a very well-organized thing. You just can't go from the Middle East on foot to Central Europe. It, you require help. You, uh, you don't have topographical maps. You uh, somehow get these smartphones, which are not cheap in the region. I, I looked at prices in Syria, for example, and... Uh, the phones they use to navigate with to find the, uh, the smuggler in Turkey and find his price, uh, well, you know, these are cost as much there as they do here. And, uh, yeah, maybe you can get a, a cheaper one or a, a used one or a, a rehabbed one or something like this. But still, uh, where do the, uh, the unaccompanied children get them? And if it's, you're leaving the country with nothing but you can carry it in your own two hands, uh, where do you get all the money to do this? The average wage in, in uh, Damascus is something like $50 a month.
0: You write that, quote, U.S. social media organizations provide the wherewithal for the migrants overrunning Europe. The companies, particularly Facebook, provide a wealth of information to the illegals. What sort of information is provided to migrants on Facebook?
1: Just about anything
0: you want. If you want to get a
1: map, uh, you can get it from Facebook. If you want um the price of a smuggler someplace, you can get it on Facebook. If you want a weather report, you can get it from Facebook. Uh, George uh, Soros is supposed to have had an app for Facebook to help him navigate the, the migrant routes. So uh, just about anything you want, you can get electronically. And the first thing these people do when they hit a country is say, where can I get my cell phone charged and how do I connect to the local Wi-Fi network?
0: And where did Facebook come from?
1: According to Wayne Mattson, the journalist, uh, he believes it came from the CIA, from their uh, technology company, in Inqtel, I-N-Q-T-E-L, that provided the seed money for Facebook to Mark Zuckerberg, who, according to a uh, article that was sent me, likes what Merkel is doing with the migrants, and he had met personally with her and, and thanked her for all of her help.
0: And you also emailed me that Twitter... Is refusing to advertise your book? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was astonished. Uh, Apparently, it's the long arm of
1: miracle and uh, freedom of speech, or lack thereof. I had um, gotten these ads from Twitter to um, sign up and and, and promote something, and I thought, well, I wasn't getting anywhere with Facebook. I had 13,000 likes on my first book in a couple of months, and I have not even 50 on my second book in, in a couple of months. So I figured I would try Twitter. And I, essentially, I made the ad with the picture of the cover of the book and the line for the background on uh, the European migrant Tuzami, uh, see my website, michaelspringmanwithtwoends.com, and put that up. They approved it. They charged me for it. And then the next day I got an email saying, we've taken it down because this is hate speech. And I have repeatedly emailed them. Uh, asking them to clarify what their definition of hate speech is because the picture of a book cover and uh, directions to a website hardly can constitute uh, hate speech.
0: Did you get a response from them? Not at all. What is Antifa and the Black Bloc? Well, those are people who are supposedly against
1: anti-fascism, and they define fascism as uh, anybody opposing the um, the migrant wave. The Black Bloc is a kind of an undercover organization that does many of the uh, uh, protest movements against uh, Pegida and the Alternative for Germany, for example, uh, who are uh, demonstrating against the migrant wave and and, and demanding that something be done to uh, take their country back. And uh, they uh, simply go and uh, march and create... uh, an uproar, and then see. Look, the fascists started. These people are, are bad people. They're uh, uh, they're terrible people. Let's do something about them. And in one case, uh, a week after the um, the New Year's Eve riots of twenty fifteen in Cologne, uh, wherein the the uh, uh, the government of the city and the Lord Mayor Henrietta Raker refused to turn water cannons loose on the. Uh, the people who were attacking the women across from the train station and the cathedral, uh, they turned the water cannons a week later on a Pegida march, uh, protesting what was not done to protect the people the previous week. So there's a, uh, a link, I think, between people who claim to be anti-fascists and the, the various city governments and the uh, uh, state and federal governments in Germany.
0: You've mentioned how the George Soros-sponsored General European University is helping the migrations, that students are offering translation assistance, etc. What about the help with Wi-Fi? Now, you write that Wi-Fi and mobile phone charging stations have been set up along migration routes going north into Europe. Who is responsible for that? Well, it's it's Soros. Uh, it's the Belgrade Center for Human Rights, which is an aid
1: group in Serbia. And um, Cisco Systems, the big uh, computer uh, software company, is also involved. They have uh, kicked in uh, a couple of hundred thousand dollars uh, for this. Cisco donated a total of $745,000 to organizations aiding in the refugee crisis, including $630,000 worth of equipment to support these deployments. And two hundred thousand dollars in grant funding to NGO partners NetHope and Mercy Corps. And it's Mercy Corps that's, that has the close relations with the American government. That always seem to be operating in war zones and had their people arrested for espionage.
0: You write that the United Nations Refugee Agency distributed thousands of SIM cards in refugee camps in Jordan. Right. Yeah. When? When oh. was that? This would have been around um, 2015, I think. So it was 2015, really, the let's say the latter half of 2015 and into 2016, where the bulk of these migrations into Europe took place. What, what is going on now? Is it still happening?
1: It is. It seemed to have fallen off the radar for a while. And then in the, uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, I've seen more and more news articles on RT. Uh, talking about the uh, the waves of migrants are now aimed at Italy and, and Spain. Uh, in the past, Italy had been the target because it's just across the water from Libya, and Libya had been just been destabilized, so people moved from there to Italy. Then the, the movement shifted to the Balkans, and then it seems to be shifting back to Italy and Spain because Spain is just across the Straits of Gibraltar. I mean, what is it, 17 miles wide, I think. So, yeah, they, they stormed the, the Spanish enclave of Suta in on in, in the edge of Morocco, and now they're taking boats across the, uh, the Straits of Gibraltar to make it to Spain and then claim asylum in Europe.
0: Could you talk about how the destabilization of Europe is part of U.S. geopolitical strategy? Why would the U.S. want Europe destabilized? Well, a, a united Europe, a, an organized Europe,
1: uh, would be a really strong economic and political competitor to the United States. Uh, a organized, developed, coherent, uh, unified Europe, uh, in particular with Germany in it, with its technology and know-how and education, uh, would be the logical partner for Russia with a vast amount of natural resources. Put those two together, and you have no longer a unipolar world, you have a multipolar world and the the strength of the other pole is far greater than the Americans. And if the Americans can somehow disrupt this, if the Americans can somehow destabilize all of Europe, uh, make the European Union uh, disintegrate, or become not Charlie de Gaulle's uh, European Europe, but an Americanized Europe, then you would have a greater control and, and the ability to uh, end any kind of uh, political, or economic uh, competition for the United States.
0: Right. So a lot of this policy of the U.S., of course, is to separate Europe from Russia at all costs. Exactly. You write that Merkel, like Obama, bases her immigration policy on a globalist view of the world former Secretary of State John Kerry warned Americans that we must prepare ourselves for a, quote, borderless world. How is it that nation states can provide citizenship and protect individual rights and liberties in ways that a borderless world cannot?
1: Well, it's really simple. There's us and then there's them, and the us government controls the borders, it provides security, it provides soldiers, it provides policemen, and it grants citizenship and the benefits of citizenship, such as voting. And if you don't have any borders, uh, who's to say who you are or where you're from? And uh, why should someone who is a stranger here from somewhere else control our policies and dictate what we can say and what we can do and what we can read? And that's that's the thing. In the end, nation-states were created Because the village, uh, because the guy out in the fields and the farmlands uh, couldn't protect themselves. You needed strong central government of one kind or another, whether it started out as the uh, the knight in his castle or the the duke in his dukedom uh, with his men-at-arms and his knights uh, to provide an order and control and uh, keeping out people who wanted to disrupt the order and control. And if you don't have a nation-state with an army and a police force behind it, uh, you're at the mercy of whoever there is out there. It's it's uh, uh, basically anarchy.
0: And how is it that the breaking down of nation-state structures allows American corporate pillaging? Well, they don't have to fight the, uh,
1: the large government, the strong government of, of France or Germany or Italy or Sweden or somewhere to uh, get their... Um, genetically modified grains and genetically modified animals into the countries. Uh, if the, the countries are weak, if you have no borders, if you have uh, uh, constant turmoil uh, in the, in the lands in, in Europe, uh, you can fish in troubled waters and, and pretty much get what you want. It's, it's kind of like uh, a disorganized city where uh, gangs rule. And if you got the gangs on your side, then you can do anything you want. And in the case of uh, American policy with uh, genetically modified milk, for example. I remember being in Germany and the Germans hated this and didn't want it into the country. Uh, the Americans kept saying, but it's good for you. And they said, no, it's not good for us. And in, in Europe, for the most part, you have to mark something that's being sold as whether it's genetically modified or not, unlike the United States. So uh, if, if they you can break this down, you can use the power of the United States against the weakened powers of a... Uh, borderless Europe to uh, get what you want.
0: I believe you have written that terrorist attacks and migrant waves are directly related. Can we consider them instruments of U.S. policy?
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, RT asked me at one point a year or so ago, uh, before I started writing the book, did I believe that there were 5,000 terrorists concealed in these waves of migrants? And I said, well, I I disputed the, the number. But I said, definitely, you, you can say that uh, terrorists are being concealed in this, and they're in hiding, and uh, they simply have these uh, peculiar passports, and they can move into the continent and do what they want to do. Uh, Qatar, for example, at one point had been printing Syrian passports uh, that were, you know, obviously the, as good as the real Koi. The French government prior to 2011 had been making passports for Syria, and who's to say they've stopped making them, and making sure they go to their special friends? I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, people were counterfeiting these passports and the counterfeits were almost indistinguishable from the real thing. So, uh, yeah, people are being fed into Europe uh, with fake documents to uh, do whatever they're being directed to do. Michael
0: Springman, thank you very much.
1: You're quite welcome. Thank you.
0: We've been speaking with J. Michael Springman. Today's show has been migration as asymmetric warfare. Michael Springman is a former diplomat in the State Department's Foreign Service with postings to Germany, India, Saudi Arabia, and the Bureau of Intelligence and Research in Washington, D.C. He was chief of the non-immigrant visa section in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia from 1987 to 1989. He is the author of Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA handouts that rocked the world, An Insider's View, and his latest Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos, Merkel's Migrant Bomb. In June 2004, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee granted him its Pro Bono Attorney of the Year Award. He is the published author of several articles on national security themes, particularly those dealing with relations between the CIA and the Department of State. He is now an attorney in private practice. Visit his website at michaelspringman.com. That's Michael, S-P-R-I-N-G-M-A-N-N dot Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org